You're listening to another great podcast in the Stoplight Network. Hi, folks, and welcome to episode 35 of the Let's Talk Photography podcast. I'm your host, Bart Bouchatz, and this is the show for August 2016. This is an interview show, and my guest for today is photographer Jeff Curto. Hi, Jeff. Hello, Bart. How are you? I am doing just fine, and your good self? I'm terrific. Excellent. Uh, everything, is, everything is just great in my world. I like to hear that. Um, now, I've, I've sort of heard your voice many times over many years because I've been a fan of both of your podcasts, but do you want to introduce yourself to the listeners so they know who you are <laughs> and what you do? Golly, let's see. Uh, so I'm a, I'm a longtime college photography professor. Uh, I started teaching uh, at a community college outside of Chicago in 1984 and just retired from there in uh, 2014, so I'm now a retired college photography professor and a uh, longtime photographer, started photographing when I was about eight years old. I've probably considered myself a serious photographer when I was maybe 18 or 19 years old and uh, had, have had a long career both, a, both as a commercial photographer and, and as a fine art photographer. Um, but when I started teaching, I kind of gave up the commercial photography bit and uh, began uh, uh, more of a fine art uh, career. And, of course, the teaching career was very time-consuming. And at some point during my teaching career, I decided that I would record uh, my history of photography class. And the, the impetus for it was I had... Uh, a few students who were going to be out on a field trip for a different class and they weren't going to be able to make the class. And they said, you know, could, could I lend you a recorder and you could record the class? And I said, well, why don't I just record it since I'm already presenting from a laptop, I'll record it. And, and so I put that online and, and I did it the next class and I did the next class. And shortly after that, I decided to turn that into a podcast, which turned out to be the history of photography podcast. And then shortly after that, I started uh, the uh, another podcast about creative photography called Camera Position, and I've been producing both of those uh, kind of off and on. I've had a little bit of pod fade, as they call it, uh, off and on uh, over the last uh, decade or so, um, both Camera Position and the History of Photography podcast. So uh, I'm probably known to a lot of people as a photography podcaster more than I am as a community college photography professor. Um, and one last bit is that I'm currently chairman of the board of an organization called the Society for Photographic Education, which is an international, uh, an international group that is uh, dedicated toward uh, photo education, predominantly made up of photo educators, but also a lot of students of photography as well. So, Man, that's uh, that's me in a nutshell, but it's a pretty big, pretty big shell, I guess. That sounds pretty cool. Um, we a, lot, also, a lot of stuff. We should mention to listeners that if you want to look at Jeff's photography, if you go to jeffkerto.com, Jeff has a few different portfolios there, um, including some nice architectural stuff from Italy, some rather cool color photographs from Italy. And I believe you do photo workshops where you take people to 
such a wonderful country and teach them to photograph amidst such great surroundings. It's true. Uh, in 2009, I started, uh, actually, I'll back up and say that I've been traveling to Italy and photographing in Italy uh, for a long time. Uh, my my first time in Italy uh, to, to photograph seriously was in 1989, and I had my 4x5 view camera with me and started making photographs and uh, continued to return there nearly every year and, and now every year for uh, for a long time. And, and what happened was that a lot of people started saying to me, well, uh, you know, won't you take me along because <laughs> go to these great places and, and, you know, I'd love to go along with you and, you know, learn what, what you're doing. And, and, uh, so I, I said, well, you know, sure, let's try that. So in 2009, uh, I got a group together and, and we, uh, sort of set up a, a workshop type opportunity and we had a uh, really good response with it. And uh, I enjoyed it immensely, so I've been doing it every year now. Uh, so that year, that first year with one group and one location has now morphed into several groups in several different locations, uh, in one week at a time. Uh, last year we were in, uh, in Rome, and I had two separate groups in the Italian lakes uh, for a week each. And then uh, my sort of standard location is, is south-central Tuscany. Uh, which is sort of my favorite place, and so we, we we did that as well. So we're ramping up for the 2017 workshops. I haven't really figured out all the locations yet, but um, what I what I really enjoy about the workshop experience is that ability to work with students directly in the field and uh, work with them on what it is that they're seeing. Um, we we cover a little bit of technology stuff, but mostly we spend time on the visual aspect of photography and trying to tell a good story with your pictures and trying to inject your own personal self into uh, the photographs in a way that uh, that hopefully segregates them from the thousands of other people making photographs in, in these beautiful locations. So uh, it's it's been a really exciting thing to do. PhotographItaly.com if anybody is interested in taking a look at uh, what we do. Cool. It's such, you know, it's, I, I can really tell from your photographs that Italy has been a real muse for you for a long time. So I, I think it would be wonderful to, to be shown around by someone who's so passionate about the place. It's true. Uh, you know, I, I, well, I, I shouldn't say it's true. Yes, it, it is wonderful to be shown around by somebody who's so passionate. But I will tell you that, uh, that a lot of my participants say the same thing, that my passion for photography and my passion for Italy are, are pretty close together. Um, and, and I, you know, I have a, uh, I have a, a sort of interest in these workshops of making it more than just a, a photography experience, but also a kind of a cultural immersion as well. So that, uh, you get a sense of what it's like to, to live and, and, uh, breathe and, and think photography in a, a place where people are really, uh, in, in many ways devoted to the visual aspect of their culture, uh, as much as as much as anything, I mean the the idea that the food tastes great but also looks beautiful uh, is uh, is an important part of of what you what you learn. So when we do a wine tasting, we look at how the wine looks as much as we look at how the wine uh, smells and tastes. So uh, we we do as much uh, cultural immersion in Italy as we can. So. 
Uh, and then I'm 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 also involved in another really exciting thing in Italy that I'm about to to depart for in a in a few weeks or actually about ten days uh, as I as I look at the calendar. Uh, I I work now as a an adjunct instructor for the University of Georgia here in the United States, and they have a study abroad program that is really exceptional. Uh, that is based in Cortona, which is a wonderful hill town in Tuscany. If anyone has ever seen uh, the the movie or or read the book Under the Tuscan Sun, it's where it's where that movie and book, the original book, are set. Cortona, Tuscany, and uh, so I'll be there for three months uh, teaching a group of undergraduate photo students. Uh, so if there's anybody out there who either knows or has an undergraduate arts oriented uh, student, this program from the University of Georgia is really phenomenal. I'm really honored to be teaching for them and excited to go back uh, for a second time this fall. Sounds sounds great, actually. Sounds wonderful. Now, the the reason I invited you to be a guest on the show is because you, I can't, I'm trying to remember who, someone sent me the link and said, you're not going to believe it, but there's a full university course on the history of photography on the internet for free. Oh my God, you'd love it. I wish I remember who it was so I could thank them, but it's a long time ago. And I started to watch it. And the nice thing is you used to release them as you were teaching. So it actually really felt like you were studying because it was, you know, a lecture a week and it would come out and I would watch it while I was cooking dinner and I would watch it while I was eating dinner. And it sort of took me on a journey. And I took an awful lot away from gaining an understanding of where photography has come from. And I think it's actually really useful to help you be a better photographer today to have an understanding of what goes back in the past. So I sort of invited you on in the hope of instilling that same inspiration into others. Well, you know, it's it's funny uh, because this morning when I was, uh, you know, just making sure that I had the right time uh, for our conversation and so forth, I uh, went to my email client and I typed your name in and I found uh, an email back from, uh, July of uh, 2008 from That's you. That's how long ago then, uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, a heartfelt thank you from Ireland, and it's a, a, a very sweet and nice note from you about listening to the history of photography course. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I'll tell you, it, it, it for something that, as I, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, for something that started out completely as something for my in-classroom students. And then I thought, well, I wonder if anybody else would be interested in, you know, a 90-minute lecture about photography. Uh, and I so I, podcasting was relatively new uh, when in 2005 when I started doing it. And, you know, so I'd, I'd been interested in podcasts and I'd been listening to some, so I put it out there in the, in the podcast world. And I was stunned, like stunned to find out that, thousands and thousands of people would be interested in studying the history of photography or learning about the history of photography. And I still get emails. In fact, I just got one the other day from, from somebody who, who said, you know, I'm, I'm uh, developing a, a photo history course at this small uh, college. And uh, I'm wondering if I could use your, your lectures and, and all of the resources you have on the the, the photo history podcast page. And I wrote back and said, absolutely. That's what it's there for. And uh, I'm really delighted that it's been used as much as it has. Uh, and I, you know, I'm, I'm not a photo historian by training. Um, I had great photo history 
classes when I was coming up through undergraduate and graduate school uh, in college. Uh, so I, I took a lot of inspiration from those classes. But uh, I'm, I'm not officially a photo historian, though I call myself one and I call all of my students photo historians because it's really important, I think, for any photographer trying to get better at the medium to know where the medium has been. It's sort of, you know, one of the things that I say often is, you know, if you decided you wanted to be a novelist uh, and you're, you, you were going to set out to write the great novel uh, and, and you had never read one before, <laughs> you, you'd have kind of a hard time figuring out what the structure of a novel ought to be and how to do character development and how to introduce characters and how to set up scenes and all of that stuff would be something you just wouldn't have any idea of how to do. So the idea that that a photographer would try to become better at the medium without having looked at where the medium went in its first 150, 160 years uh, is kind of preposterous. The idea that we have to really know what it is that where we've come from in order to understand where it is that, that we're headed. Now, I, I, the tagline of the History of Photography podcast is quite interesting, actually, because it says, you know, a podcast that covers the history of the medium of photography from before its invention until the present day. So it's kind of interesting. That in order to understand photography, you can't start with its invention. You actually have to go back because it didn't come out of a vacuum. It came out of some sort of deep human need to do something. Well, you know, we can we can go, and I and I don't go quite this far back, but you know, we can go all the way back to the, you know, the the cave paintings in in, in uh, prehistoric times. But uh, there's been a, a a continual need and desire for uh, from the beginning, really, probably the beginning of mankind, to relate to others what it is that they have seen, whether it's you know pictures of the hunt or you know, pictures of the land over the mountain or whatever it is that they that they saw, uh, you know, relate what that looked like to their their fellow human beings. And so we do go back to, uh, you know, I probably start way back with Egyptian paintings and looking at the way people saw the world and uh, the idea of idealized uh, artwork that really didn't look specifically at what the world looked like, but what the drawer of the picture thought a drawing was supposed to look like. And then we go through the the sort of oddball series of events that, uh, that culminate in photography that really work through a series of, of optical technologies to help people look at how to draw the world. And once that's done... Uh, then there's the, the the bits and pieces of chemical technology that allow those optically based images to be recorded uh, by light. So uh, you really kind of have to understand some of the problems that photography was solving, uh, the the dilemma of not being able to draw very well. You know, something that I can relate to yeah. in all of my all of my art school training. 
Uh, I remember taking a painting class uh, <laughs> and, you know, I'd learned how to draw and I think anybody can learn how to draw. Uh, it's a skill like any other skill that you can develop and, and figure out how to do. But I remember taking a painting class where the final critique, the the painting instructor who knew that I was uh, a photographer at heart said, you know, it's a good thing that you've got photography. <laughs> <laughs> How charming. <laughs> because painting was not my strong suit. So, you know, the problems that photography was trying to solve, you know, inadequacies in, in being able to draw accurate pictures, uh, the the problem of being able to uh, or not being able to uh, uh to to make pictures quickly enough, uh, the 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 incentive or the the hope that um, somebody would uh, would would be able to make a picture in in seconds rather than in in hours, uh, all of that kind of stuff uh, contributed to to the history of the medium, and you can't really understand what sorts of problems it solved until you understand what those problems were. So. Uh, yeah, so we we start way back at the at, at at early early art work and work our way forward to uh, to a bunch of other stuff. Now, since I haven't been teaching that class now for a couple of years, um, I uh, I have one sort of complete semester uh, online at photohistory.jeffcurto.com, uh, and then. My intention was, and and this is a little pod fade on my on my part. My intention was that every other week I would produce a a short topic about uh, photography's history, and I I was pretty good at it for a while, and and I've I've sort of lapsed a little bit, but I've got a couple of things that I'm working on right now that should be out in the next month or so. So uh, uh, there are some shorter topics uh, rather than the the ninety minute class sessions. Um, some shorter topics about uh, photography's history that that uh, are there as well. So uh, hopefully, kind of keeping up that idea. But uh, it was it was kind of neat, as you mentioned, because since I would record it every every week during class time, uh, it, you know, every every week, fifteen weeks uh, each semester, two semesters a year. Uh, so, uh, 30, 30 podcasts, 30 classroom sessions. And what I would do is I would replace class session number one with, from the previous semester with class session number one of, of another semester. But what I've done now is I've gone back and kind of found, uh, the ideal, uh, class session for each one of the, the, uh, uh, the, the sessions and, and sort of made those into a, a sort of perfect semester as it were yeah, uh, best of yeah best of cool uh, so uh so it's all there and uh as well as a bunch of other resources uh the syllabus for the class is there handouts that i would give the students each week are all there uh including uh questions that uh, uh that that i would have the students try to answer in classroom discussions those classroom discussions, I didn't. I didn't record. I tried it for a little while, and it never quite came across correctly as as recorded content. So, uh, so I kind of bailed out on that. And uh, uh, so the the content is really just the content that lecture content that I delivered, and occasionally questions and answers from the students in the classroom. So, uh, but you know, some somewhere around. Uh, 
uh, each week when I was doing it regularly for the classroom sessions, somewhere around 12 to 14,000 people were downloading these things each week, uh, which, you know, I never, I never in my wildest dreams would have imagined that that, that that was possible. And now that I've got this sort of, you know, set uh, of classes on online, I've got, you know, some of them with, you know, 30, 40,000 downloads. So it's <laughs> kind of like uh, hard to believe, but but there it is. So imagine trying to fit all those people into a classroom. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and it was also, it was also really interesting from the, from the point of view of the in-classroom students, uh, because, you know, when I would tell them about the number of people who were listening, they, they couldn't believe it because for them, you know, this was a, a, a good sized community college photo program in Chicago suburbs and, uh, you know, for them, it was just sort of their, their required, you know, if they were going through the photo program, this was their required, uh, first year level class that they had to take. And some of them took it grudgingly and some of it took, <laughs> some of them took it not so grudgingly, but when they discovered that there were lots of people out there in the world who were interested in the topic, uh, their, their grudgingness <laughs> became a lot less, uh, because they recognized that this this content had some value. Cool. Um, one of the first things that struck me when I first did the course, it's sort of an interesting question of, are inventions the result of genius? Are our inventions the result of inevitability? And <laughs> photography was independently discovered twice, like at about the same time. So does that mean that the people invented it were geniuses or does that mean that its invention was just going to happen? Boy, I, I you know, I think... I think a little of both, maybe. Mm -hmm. uh, and what I think is really fascinating, I mean, if we, if, if we just sort of uh, take the, the, the two sort of most well-known, uh, two or three, I guess, sort of most well-known inventors of the medium, the, the Frenchman Daguerre, who was responsible for what eventually became the daguerreotype, and, and the, the Englishman Fox Talbot, uh, who kind of uh, created what eventually became negative positive transformation of of the medium and then the third person uh, this French guy Nieps who basically Daguerre borrowed a lot of his ideas for <laughs> borrowed it. that's a generous yeah, term. borrowed yeah well uh, you know you don't want to say thievery because he's dead and you, you know he can't defend himself but you know he died uh, before uh, Daguerre brought the the process of the daguerreotype to the to the marketplace but if you read a lot of the the things about the early years of photography there are a number of other uh photography inventors who never got kind of brought to the fore uh perhaps because they didn't have the connections that fox talbot a a, a landed British aristocrat guy had, and you know, he traveled in the right social circles to be able to publish his results. Or Daguerre having the ear of the French Academy of Sciences. But you know, so so what I'm trying to say is that at this particular time, and and what we're talking about here is the the middle to late 1830s. So uh, you know, the 1835 to 1839 era. And 1839 is sort of the, <clears throat> the the spot that I use as the, the sort of birthplace year of photography, although it was really being worked on uh, well before that and even in the 1820s. So what I'm trying to say here is that 
all of the puzzle pieces existed. Optical technology existed. Uh, the idea of light-sensitive materials existed. Uh, different types of light-sensitive materials existed. Uh, a wide variety of, of you know, bits and pieces of the technology existed. And all it really was going to take was for somebody to have the insight to come along and put all of those puzzle pieces together. Yeah. So it, it, in a way, it's, it's sort of this combination of inevitability and genius, right? You know, it, yeah. uh, it, it has, it has uh, a, a, the, the essence of a little bit of both of those things. Um, and, and I don't know that, that I could really say that one thing or another is the, is the most profound reason for the invention of photography. Uh, but, uh, but, but really the sort of confluence of those, of those things, technology and, uh, people with, with enough insight to bring those technologies together into, into photography. What's also interesting is that the stuff that we really like about photography now, neither of the two pioneers had it, had it all. So exactly. Daguerre had the, like stupendous detail, but it was a one-off. And then Fox Talbot had effectively infinite reproducibility, but it really wasn't very detailed. Exactly. You know, Fox Talbot's process had the initial dilemma of you know, him not being able to figure out any way, or maybe he didn't think of any way, to put the negative on anything other than a piece of paper. Hmm. So once the negative was on a piece of paper, the way to make a positive out of it was to place that piece of paper with the negative or tonally inverted image on top of another piece of sensitized paper. So when he was making the positive, which, you know, would have the correct tones of, you know, something that was light was light in the, in the resultant picture. Uh, and something that was dark was dark naturally, uh, that the, the fibers of the paper interfered with the quality of the image. Uh, and so you, you got a picture that it was, you could make a hundred of them, but, mm. They didn't have the quality of the daguerreotype, and the, and Daguerre's process had this unbelievable quality. And if if you ever get a chance, if anyone out there listening ever gets a chance to see a daguerreotype up close, and it's one of the things that that was kind of always sad about the podcast because I would bring daguerreotypes in and show them to students, uh, but it really wasn't possible to 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 convey the way that looked yeah. uh, in uh, uh, in a uh, in, in a in a podcast so but daguerreotype quality is just it's still unmatched you know the the ability to look at a picture with a magnifying glass and see immense amounts of detail but as you as you note the plate that went into the back of the camera was the same plate that you eventually held in your hand and there was no way to reproduce it other than to make a photographic copy of it uh, which in in which the quality would degrade or to stand in the same place and make uh, a separate new picture, which also had a problem because yeah. uh, you know it, it wasn't going to be the same exact thing, especially if it was, say, a portrait and somebody's expression would change or whatever. So, so it, it it is interesting that with these two inventions, uh, one had multiple reproducibility, the other had incredible detail, uh, but it wasn't until uh, maybe 30 years later that the two of those things came together with uh, glass plate negatives where the the quality of the image 
could easily be translated to a paper print and multiple copies could be made. So, uh, and and here now in our, in our traditional or our contemporary rather era, we have the ability to you know to put one picture out on the on the internet and have it be reproduced twenty thousand times in the matter of you know fractions of a second um, with multiple downloads of that single uh, that single file. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, but we've we've lost the kind of the level of detail that Daguerre had. We, we can't really it's get it back. I don't know that we can get it back. Um, you know, there, there, and which is, which is why, and it, it's it's another one of the things about the medium's history that's really fascinating, it, and and something that I would that I showed in the class and continue to be intrigued by is how many photographers in today's world are still working with uh, 19th century photo processes, reaching back into the history of the medium to look at ways that photographers produced work that had a particular look and feel. And so there are still people making daguerreotypes and there are still people making wet plate collodion. In fact, wet plate collodion is has kind of blossomed in its popularity, uh, glass plate negatives. So, uh, and I, and I think that that is kind of a, a combo platter of things. And one is, uh, a reaction to the often sterile qualities of digital photography and also, uh, an interest in having, uh, having that look or that feel or that quality, uh, of a 19th century photographic process or an early 20th century one. Something something else that struck me a lot as I went through the series. So I one of the first things I ran into with modern digital cameras, this is the first, I don't know, stumbling block, I guess, where my eye would see something and I would say, I wish to capture this and I would take the picture and it wouldn't work. And the reason was because our digital cameras today have a very small dynamic range. And in Ireland, in the winter, the sun is actually never particularly high in the sky. It reaches its highest point in the sky is only about 30 degrees up. So you have long shadows for the entire winter that are very dark. And the naked eye sees into them just fine. And when I got my digital camera and started taking pictures, these shadows were these horrible things. And so the fight for dynamic range immediately resonated with me. And when you watch the history of photography, all, all the episodes, they have been fighting with that for hundreds of years. You know, it is, it is really, it's, there are so many things about the history of the medium and its relationship to our contemporary world of digital photography that, that are just sort of mind boggling. You know, one is, is exactly that, 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 uh, you know, we've been struggling with the problem, the, the, the lack, the difference between what our human eye sees and what technology can record, uh, for a pretty long time. Uh, and, the, the technology of photography in its infancy was uh, limited and it continued to be limited throughout the history of the medium. And, you know, if we look, I don't know, the, the easiest one that, that comes to mind is looking in the, in the 1930s and 1940s at uh, Ansel Adams and uh, his development along with some other folks of, of the zone system of exposure and development in order to solve the problem of contrast in in images uh, or not not necessarily solve the problem but at least understand the problem well enough to be able to capture what the photographer wanted 
to capture. And that same principle of the zone system of exposure and development can uh, can still be applied in the digital era. It's just that, as you note, we're dealing with a, a, a more limited dynamic range, although that's changing too, uh, that the cameras are getting better and, and we're, we're more capable of capturing more. And, you know, the and I'll I'll raise the 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 specter of the of the phrase uh, HDR, uh, which is you know generally speaking I, I think a lot of the HDR photographs that I see are kind of atrocious looking, but the capacity anyway to make a photograph out of uh, uh, something that it, you know an underexposed picture and an overexposed picture and taking the best parts of both of those worlds uh, is 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 certainly possible. But one of the things that really uh, amazes me, and I remember back, you know, back at the beginning, at the dawn of the digital era, when we were first starting to talk about digital photography, and and I remember being invited by a, a local camera club here in Chicago to come and talk to them about digital photography and uh, their goal, I think, was to have me as a somebody that they knew taught the history of photography to come and tell them about how digital photography wasn't really going to amount to much. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I, I think that was what they thought I was going to say. But what I started out with was I started out with how in the 19th century, photographers made multiple images and took multiple images and combine them together in single photographs uh, to solve problems of perspective, depth of field, uh, exposure problems of, of lack of dynamic range, uh, and that, that they continued to do those things both for uh, you know, technical solutions to technical problems, but also solutions to aesthetic problems. I want to make a picture look like this, therefore, I'm going to make three pictures or 10 pictures and I'm going to combine them together by compositing them together uh, using 19th century technologies. So then I would sort of flash forward to, you know, what this camera club group thought was this abomination of taking, you know, multiple digital photographs and compositing them and putting, you know, one person's head on another person's body and so forth and so on. And it's like, well, it isn't actually any different. It's just a different use of technologies. Uh, and then, then I went through all of the different things that photography had uh, had had embraced. Where, you know, like small format cameras, thirty-five millimeter cameras, were once looked upon by the the news professional, the news photographer profession, as being something that no news photographer would ever possibly use because every great news photographer used a, a handheld four by five inch negative producing camera. Everybody did. Why would anybody use one of these toy cameras, a 35 millimeter camera? Uh, and of course, you know, that rolled over like a steamroller. And the same thing happened in the digital era that, you know, I had, I had students telling me, you know, they'd, They'd pry, they'll pry my 35 millimeter film camera out of my hands when I'm dead and cold. And like, well, two years later, they all had 30, you know, digital SLRs, <laughs> uh, you know, because, because that's how the world of technology works. So uh, I don't think any one of us would, you know, go back to the era of, uh, of 
you know, dial up internet or pre-internet, uh, you know, the, something that wouldn't allow a conversation like this to happen across uh, a whole ocean and half of a continent. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, it, to, progress marches on and photography still has to solve the same visual problems just using different pieces of technology. Yeah, so basically, there never was a time when photography was a pure medium and there was no tinkering about because people have been you tinkering it. with it since the 18-somethings. You got it. And it's really, it's really interesting because everyone who says, well, I want to go back to when photography was pure is, is either just like deluding themselves or just don't know the history of, uh, of how photography came about and how other practitioners solved the problem. Uh, so when you go back and look at Oscar Raylander's uh, photograph made up of 30 different negatives where he was trying to imitate uh, Raphael's School of Athens, uh, <laughs> you know, it it it, uh, it kind of gives you pause when you think about, well, should I, you know, would it be OK if I put a different sky into this picture, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> Is that is that violating the principle of photography? Well, not really. And, and it doesn't violate the principle of photography if I bring in, you know, the uh, the Ansel Adams name again and say, you know, using the the red filter over the front of the camera to darken the sky in many of his dramatic landscape photographs. Boy, is that a, is that cheating? Does that, you know, does that remove the purity of photography? No. No, it's it's all about using the tools at your disposal to to figure out how to express yourself best. Yeah. I, I I've done a lot of experimenting with HDR for the purpose of getting closer to what my eye sees. So I, I tend not to go for very OTT HDRs, but I do a lot of HDR, and I got so. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I made that. No, 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 it's fine, because I got so cranky with people telling me that, like, they'd look at a photograph, and they wouldn't even, you know, I'd tell them it was HDR, and then they'd hate it. Not, not They wouldn't hate it before. And I'd say, like, oh, this isn't pure. I got so cranky that I actually used the History Photography series to construct an argument going back to Gustave Le Gray in, like, 1865, and say, well, if it was good enough for him, it's good enough for me. Good enough for me. Yeah, exactly. And and I think, I, I suppose my, my complaint about HDR is that many of the HDR photographs I see uh, have that have that intensity slider and the glow slider or whatever it is slid so far to the right that uh, they they start to not look to me like photographs. And I suppose you know I'm I'm contradicting my own argument by saying that that that's not a photograph. It's just I suppose the the better way to say it is that it's not to my taste. Yeah, which is uh, fine. I mean, you know, right. everyone has their own taste and there's nothing wrong with that. When I get cranky is when people say, well, that's not photography. It's like, well, did it come from photons? <laughs> oh, it did. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, the uh, all of the ideas that, that we see frequently of people using texture screens and, you know, uh, it, it it's one of those things that like, I don't know, like uh, – you know, solarizing. If you've ever worked in the in in the traditional darkroom, and there's a technology uh, piece known as solarizing an image, where uh, the the uh, photograph is exposed under the enlarger, put into the developer, and about halfway through the development process, lights are turned on in the darkroom and turned very quickly off, uh, and what you get is a sort of outline around the outside of the 
uh, around the outside of, of hardline objects. Oh. And uh, it's, a, it's a pretty neat technique um, that can be used really effectively, but is in some ways kind of limiting. Uh, you, you can use it, but you can't use it 500 times. Yes. Uh, so it's, it's a really effective way of making a small limited group of photographs, but it might be a difficult thing to, uh, to, to build your, 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 your visual style on. Uh, and, you know, I see, I see a lot of photographs that use uh, a certain visual style uh, that really works for one project that someone might do and then might not work for the next project that they do. Uh, so I think it, it really is one of those things that you have to kind of think through uh, how you want to express what it is that you're expressing and use all the tools that you have at your disposal to, to figure that out. But, you know, ultimately it really just comes down to, I think, uh, how you see what you see and where you put the camera and uh, how you how you position yourself relative the sub relative to the subject and 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 I mean that both how you position yourself physically but also how you position yourself emotionally what it is that what what it is that you're trying to say about mm. the subject yeah um another another theme that keeps coming up is sort of the question of is the art of photography influencing the technology, or is the technology is the art of photography driving the technology, or is the technology driving the art, or is it both? Boy, boy you know, I, you're, you're taking you're taking all of my classroom questions and tossing them back at me. <laughs> That's this is my job to ask the students those questions. No, this is great. Um, you know, because it is it is one of those push me pull yous that has happened throughout the history of the medium uh, of the technology influencing uh, the medium because, you know, there are certain things that you can and cannot do at certain places in the history of the medium. Mm. So an example that I'll give is uh, the, the advent of wet plate collodion where the photographer coated a glass plate negative in the field or just before exposure because uh, it had to be uh, exposed while wet and developed before it dried out. So that's why it's called wet plate. So not portable. Uh, so, say again? So not particularly portable. The, not the particularly inverse of a port- camera phone. Exactly, exactly. So uh, the advent of that also meant that pictures could be made larger because you really were only limited by the size of the piece of glass. And then subsequently how big a camera you owned or could have built for yourself that would hold a piece of glass. And so a number of photographers used that uh, new piece of technology to go out and make photographs that were quite large. And the reason that they would make them on these huge pieces of glass is because enlarging the negative wasn't possible because the printing paper was not uh, speedy enough in terms of its response to light to allow the the photograph to be printed uh, at a size, any size other than the, uh, and I'm sorry, if you hear loud noises, there's some construction going on downstairs for me in uh, the, the space below my apartment. So um, there's some, fine. Drill, some drilling and stuff going on. Sorry about that. Um, but uh, so 
So if you wanted to make a 20 by 24 inch photograph, you had to make a 20 by 24 inch negative so that you could make a 20 by 24 inch print. And so there's a place where, you know, the technology existed in such a way to allow people to say, you know, I'd like to make a bigger photograph. I'm photographing enormously expansive landscapes and I'd like to be able to have a photograph that is, you know, 16 by 20. So therefore I now have technology that's available to me to allow me to make a 16 by 20 image. So if, if you think about uh, the, the sort of confluence of technology and the uh, the ability to express oneself in a certain way uh, n- n- when that technology existed suddenly photographers had this new vocabulary they could use to express themselves in this new way previously photographs maxed out at maybe seven by nine inches uh, as the biggest image that could be made with uh, daguerreotype or or uh, uh, the the paper process of of calotype or Fox Talbot's process the Talbot type, uh, so the ability to make the picture bigger is related to an advent in, in technology. But the advent in technology probably came at least in part from how would I be able to make a bigger picture? So it's kind of like the push me pull you. You've got to yeah. have a little of this and a little of that at the same time, and we see the same trends happening now you know that that really all you need for most applications in photography most of the things that most photographers do uh it you know if if you have a camera that's at least five megapixels maybe eight you've got a a great piece of kit because you've got a nice uh, set up to make uh, a photograph and if you wanted to print it you can print it at 8 by 10 or even 11 by 14 and it looks okay yeah. right but now we have a lot of photographers making photographs you know I have a I have a friend I went and visited him in his studio a little while back and you know he was he was making photographs with his uh, Canon 5D but he wanted to make them enormously big and he wasn't satisfied with the quality of the print so he was moving toward uh, thinking about buying an an incredibly expensive medium format system to allow him to make the photographs extraordinarily large and retain the quality. So the fact that we now have, you know, 50 megapixel, 100 megapixel cameras uh, that allow that kind of uh, size to happen, is it the technology driving the desire to make big prints or is it the desire to make big prints driving the the desire to make you know cameras with more pixels? It's kind of a it, it's kind of a you know it, it, I say it again the push me pull you of of the the technology of the medium. So it's full of feedback loops everywhere. You got it. Interesting. Now this is perhaps perhaps a, a slightly mean question to spring on you out of the blue, but. <laughs> photography is full of larger than life characters, a history of photography. You know, immediately you, you think of, um, oh, what's the American chap? Uh, friend of Leland St- Stanford. Stieglitz. Well, okay. Stieglitz. Okay. Stieglitz, that, you know, when, when you said characters, larger than life characters, Stieglitz is one of them. Uh, Moybridge is another. That's who I was thinking uh, of. To, to yeah. me now, Moy, I always think of Moybridge because of his um, 
his light shade where he had this like movable shade inside the camera yes. so he could block out the sky. That, that always appealed to me. Again, the HDR in me. Um, yeah, so and, who who would be your favorite of these larger than life figures that, that you sort of resonate most with? Golly, that's such a great question. Uh, you know, Moybridge is is an interesting character, uh, and you know there there are a number of uh, sort of uh, suppositions about what made him such an interesting uh, character. Um, one of them is that at some point during his uh, early life, he he uh, suffered an injury in an accident where he hit his head, uh, and there is some suggestion that that uh, altered his personality in some way, and that he was sort of uh, a little bit of a madman in addition to being a, a sort of genius photographer. And, you know, this is a guy who walked up to the to the rooming house where uh, a, a man who was ha- – a rooming house uh, that, that housed a guy who was having a, an affair with Moybridge's wife, and he called the guy out and he shot him dead uh, in front of the rooming house. Uh, and then, you know, so then Moybridge has to go to South America for a while to lay low, <laughs> to lay low. Um, uh, but you know, just like kind of a, kind of a crazy, a crazy person. But, you know, uh, when I, when I think about a larger than life character, I think of a guy like Stieglitz who changed photography's face on a number of different sort of channels. Uh, so, a great photographer in his own right, pushing the the sort of envelope of the medium, uh, and, but just as importantly as his pushing the envelope of the medium, is his sense that uh, that photography was an art form in and of itself, and that it wasn't some sort of offshoot of another form of art, and that it should be treated. As such, that so that it should be treated as a form of art that it was that that was special unto itself, and he was sort of tireless in his pursuit of this, and he did it on multiple fronts. You know, combining in his gallery that, that he started in New York City, combining uh, you know artists like uh, Matisse and uh, uh, Monet and and you know, and George O'Keefe and uh, Joan Arp and 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 those kinds of folks with his own photographs and photographs uh, by Paul Strand and 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 looking at the idea that that art is a continuum of different ways of self-expression and that photographs had a similar kind of resonance or could uh, with the painted image or with the sculpted object. Uh, so. Uh, you know, here's a guy who, who really kind of lived the life of an artist, uh, but also tirelessly advocated for photography, and really, almost single-handedly. Uh, and I, I suppose I'll have you know some people say that not true, single-handedly, but I'll say almost single-handedly, shoved photography into the 20th century by making sure that people understood that photography had its own aesthetic and that it wasn't trying to imitate the conventions of other forms of art like painting or drawing. Um, and, and so we owe him a, a tremendous debt in terms of thinking through uh, how photography could be considered 
uh, its own separate form of art uh, that that wasn't like anything else that had come before it, uh, and and should be should be thought of as such. Yeah, actually, that's that's another theme that you you hit on a lot in the ser- in the history series is sort of you know so photography comes out of painting. And then photography sort of pushes back into painting because the painters are suddenly freed from having to be realistic. Because, well, if you want realistic, there's a camera over there in the corner, off you go. And then you can have people like Picasso who are as far from photographic in their paintings as I think it's possible to be. And I I don't have the quote directly in front of me, but Picasso said something like, you know, why would I want to try to record the way the world really looks in the era of the camera, that would be foolish. Why don't I try to use this freedom uh, to, to do something different and to explore other ways of seeing? Uh, so, uh, and, and I think that that's another, another piece that's really interesting. And I think one of the things that informed my teaching of the history of photography for so long was my frustration as a student of art taking you know, I don't know, 10 or more art history classes in my career as a, as a student, uh, that photography was given short shrift if, if any attention. Uh, you know, I, I can think of a lot of photo or a lot of art history classes that I had where we talked about the history of Western art and the history of Eastern art and never did any of those art history professors mention photography? And I'd ask them about photography, and they'd say, well, you know, it's not really relevant because we're talking about the history of painting. It's like, well, yeah, it is completely relevant, especially after photography really becomes the the sort of primary medium of, let's say, portraiture, uh, that painted portraits become a completely different sort of thing. Even, even painted portraits like, you know, Sargent or other, you know, other great portrait painters begin to explore different ways of portraying the human face in paintings. And, you know, certainly Matisse and, you know, some of those other other great artists who painted portraits, but began to look at different ways to look at the human face, especially because suddenly photography was was making those accurate likenesses and accurate likenesses that were also able to convey a sense of personality and a, a sense of, of personhood uh, to, to the subject. So golly, you know, uh, it, 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 if you don't look at the history of photography, when you're looking at the history of art or vice versa, uh, I think you're missing out on a lot of the, a lot of the valences that occur between the two. Okay, um, I can, uh, this, this is a particularly evil question. Is there anything you wish oh, no. I had asked you? <laughs> if there's, is there anything you wish you, uh, you had asked me? Mm. Golly, that's a great question. Uh, no, no, I can't. I mean, I think you've, you know, you're you're a good interviewer. You you got a lot of you got a lot of good uh, good stuff out of me. It's been interesting to 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 sit and kind of talk about these ideas that I that I, uh, I think about all, a lot, but uh, don't get a chance to really talk about very much anymore. So that's been a lot of fun. Um, you know, certainly uh, uh, I, I appreciate the, uh, the, the, the notion that, that maybe somebody is going to tune into the History of Photography podcast or the Camera Position podcast about creative photography or 
uh, perhaps even join me on uh, one of my Italy photo workshops. But, you know, I, he said, putting all of his plugs in at once. Um, but <laughs> I, I, I appreciate the opportunity to be on your show. Um, I, uh, since you invited me, uh, uh, I went back and listened uh, to some of the other podcasts. And uh, it's, a, it's a great podcast. I appreciate you putting it out there. Oh, thank you. That that uh, I, I'm gobsmacked. Irish people are terrible at taking compliments, so apologies. <laughs> um, actually, did you want to just mention a little bit more about camera position? Because I, I love your tagline for that podcast, which is a podcast about the creative side of photography, which is so in tune with what I'm hoping that this show is about. Because I like to say it's about the art and craft of photography. You know, I sort of we have a no a no gear talk rule, and that that's in keeping with camera position. I think. Well, you know. I started camera position uh, because I I looked you know I started listening to podcasts in in, in 2004 2000 maybe late 2003 and I started the history podcast in 2005 and shortly after that I started this camera position podcast and it was in reaction to uh, all of the podcasts that were out there many of them incredibly high quality and great people and people who are. Uh, you know, my friends, Chris Marquardt and, you know, people putting out really great quality podcasts that were predominantly about the, the gear, uh, the gear and the software. And, uh, and, and I, I, again, I don't want to take anything away from any of those podcasts because they're very helpful and very interesting, uh, in terms of what they covered. But I noticed that there was this sort of big gap and that there wasn't anybody talking about what you do with the gear, uh, at least at that time. And I think an awful lot of people have, have recognized that, that that next piece of the question, okay, now that I know how to use my digital camera, now that I know how to use Photoshop or Lightroom or whatever, uh, uh, I, you know, now that I have that, what do I do with it? You know, what am I supposed to do and how do I go about uh, thinking through the process of what it is to be a creative photographer. And another thing that I really recognized is that, uh, and, and I, I think I really recognized this from the explosive growth of the audience of the History of Photography podcast, is I saw, wow, you know, there's a lot of people who didn't have the background that I was lucky enough to have, the background of being able to uh, spend four years in an undergraduate art program and get a bachelor of fine arts degree and then spend another couple of years in a master of fine arts program and get a master of fine arts degree in photography. Uh, there are people who might want to have that information, but don't get a chance to, uh, to, to, to be able to do that, you know, because their life trajectory took them in a different direction. They ended up, uh, you know, going to school for other things or having a career in a different a different avenue entirely. And shouldn't those people be able to have the same experience, have the same possibilities uh, as anyone else? You know, shouldn't they be able to uh, think about deeper thoughts in photography, but without somebody to kind of help them, help direct them toward thinking more deeply about photography, uh, they, they wouldn't have that opportunity. So uh, it's why I started camera position and uh and you know of course talking about uh my my first thought was really just the the hardest thing to to do in photography i think is to figure out where to put the camera 
where do you position the camera relative to your subject? And I think I mentioned that a minute ago. You know, how do you position yourself both physically and emotionally relative to the subject? So uh, I've been working along with camera position and uh, and uh, now I'm really pretty pretty good about every couple of weeks putting out an episode of camera position and talking about the creative process and talking about the things that I find interesting about how I think about photography and and how other people think about photography as well and bringing in a, uh, other kinds of sort of valences about uh, how photographers think and how other photographers look at the medium. Uh, so uh, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun to do and um, uh, it, uh, it has uh, a, a stalwart audience that has been listening for a long time and, and I'm, I'm happy to have them there and really happy to have, uh, uh, you know, may, maybe some new listeners who might be interested in learning a little bit more about the creative process. And I, I think if, if they're listening to this podcast, uh, I think they would probably be interested in, in camera position based on, uh, what I know that, uh, that you're doing with, uh, uh, let's talk about photography. So, um, yeah, no, thanks, I think thanks. I think our audience definitely would be a very good fit, and I'm hoping we've inspired people to listen to the history of photography because, like I say, I got so much out of that podcast, and I'm hoping that some of our listeners will will jump over that you've inspired them today. I hope so too. I hope so too because you know you can't know where you're going unless you know where you've been, right? You know you gotta you kind of kind of have to look in the rearview mirror to see where it was that you came from. Uh, in order to see that you can make some forward progress uh, while at the same time uh, understanding what other people have done. And I, I'll, I'll leave the listeners with uh, these, your listeners, uh, our listeners here with, with one uh, idea that I think is a really interesting one. And that is that every single possible subject in photography, type of photography, uh, every possible thing that could be photographed was photographed within the first 30 to 40 years of the existence of the medium. So if we sort of target the the medium's uh, birth date as 1839, uh, by, you know, by 1890 or so, pretty much everything had been photographed. And everything that we have photographed, any one of us who are listening, has been a variation on the theme. Uh, of, that somebody else has already articulated. And I usually have somebody say, but what about underwater photography? Done. What yeah. about astral photography? Done. You know, what about, you know, uh, pretty much everything that anybody had thought about photographing in the history of photography was done within the first 30 years. So it's up to us then to figure out how to position ourselves both emotionally and physically to make something new out of existing ideas yes yes so to to view the same world in a different way exactly exactly um just remind people jeff what the url is to get at all your stuff so uh probably the 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 simplest one is is my first and last name jeffcurto.com j-e-f-f-c-u-r-t-o.com and that's kind of a my it's my own personal photography clearinghouse, but it also uh, uh, has a, a, a spot where you can get to everything else. Uh, but photohistory.jeffcurto.com is the History of Photography podcast. 
cameraposition.com is the is the camera position podcast and photographitaly.com is the uh, Italy photography workshops uh, uh, website. And again, you can get to all of that stuff from jeffcurto.com. Cool. Um, I now get to do my pluggy bits. Uh, so just a reminder to everyone that you can get show notes, which will have a link to Jeff's site over at lets-talk.ie. If you happen to wander over there, there's three large blue buttons under the heading support the show. I appreciate it very much when people click on those buttons. Um, the, the most productive way to support the show is through Patreon, where you pledge a certain small dollar amount for every show I manage to put out. And that way, when the bills come in, I can pay them. And that is very much appreciated. So all of you who already support the show on Patreon, thank you very much. You really are the uh, life and soul of this place because this is entirely listener supported. So without you guys, don't, it don't work no good. And then there's also a plain old um, PayPal link and also a Zazzle store where you can buy merchandise with a logo on it. So that's sort of like twofold support. Onefold because I get a commission from Zazzle and twofold because you're a walking advertisement for, for the show when you have the merchandise on. Again, also you can review the show or review the show on iTunes and all those kind of things and it's all very much appreciated. Uh, I've been your host, Bart Bouchot. So you can find me at bartb.ie. And until next time, happy snapping. to another great podcast in the Stoplight Network. Ever think about becoming a podcaster? Thinking, wow, you know, that's probably way too hard. Well, we have a solution. The Stoplight Network is looking for brand new shows to join the network. Won't cost you a dime. In fact, you might actually make some money off of it. So if you've always wanted to podcast and it seemed way too daunting, drop me a line. My name is Tim Robertson. I am the host of TechFan. I started the MyMac Podcasting at the dawn of podcasting. And I can help you get your podcast up and running. Simply send an email to Tim, that's T-I-M, at MyMac, M-Y-M-A-C, dot com. Tim at MyMac.com. Let's get your show ready for primetime. time.